Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation is gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. 
the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Awake, awake, put on strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you are sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. You shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the Lord God of Israel will be your rear guard. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the way in which you are faithful to your promises. We ask now that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and that, Father, as we heard again and again in this text, the refrain to find comfort, Lord, we would ask that indeed uh, those who are here this morning and who are in need of the real and legitimate comfort that the gospel gives, that it would be theirs this morning in abundance. For we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible makes it very clear that God is not an absentee deity. Rather, God has particular plans for the world he has created. And so he calls his people to order their lives in accordance to those plans and purposes. Our God is at work in the world that he created. When I trust that that is indeed true, that God is doing something, I ought to act accordingly. Now, please note I say we ought to act accordingly. I think we all know that there are times in which what we ought to do and, which, and that which we actually do are maddeningly different. In fact, it's this phenomenon that sadly defines much of contemporary American evangelicalism. On the one hand, we know we ought to do something, and yet on the other hand, we find ourselves behaving in a way that is very, very different. George Barna and others have discovered that our view of God is not really biblical, 
but rather driven more by our felt needs than by God's revelation of himself in the text. We have a need to be good people. So our God is a moral being. We have stuff we need to work through and we want to feel better about ourselves, and so we've created for ourselves a God who is a therapeutic being. Finally, we can't really live with the idea, not in any meaningful way, that we're the product of time and chance, as evolution insists, so we become deists. We believe in the man upstairs who created all that we see, but then basically leaves us to our own devices. Well, in our text for this morning, God reminds his people that his particular work is sending his servant into the world. In fact, last Sunday, we looked at Isaiah chapter 52, the first part of it, in which we're told that God's servant is coming into the world. This servant is not only coming, but he's bringing God's word and God's light into the world with him. So when I trust that this is indeed true, that God will indeed keep his promises, how ought God's people to order their lives? How do I make my faith in God evident in my day-to-day living? Now, if you look in the bulletin, there's an outline for our time together this morning. It can be found on the second page. And there you see something called the big idea. Our big idea for this morning is this. True biblical faith always acts. True biblical faith always acts. Three points we want to make this morning then. The first one is this. Stop talking and listen. Stop talking and listen. There are three imperatives that drive this particular section. In fact, this entire passage that we read this morning is driven by imperatives. In other words, God is giving us commands. There are things that he's calling us to do. They're not suggestions. They are commands. And there are three imperatives that drive this particular section, that drive verses 1 to 8. It's found in verse 1, again in verse 4, and then again in verse 7. They're to listen. Verse 1, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Verse 4, give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. And then again, verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. What does he want them to listen to? What is it that he wants them to make sure that they keep in mind and that they uh, need to stop talking and instead be rehearsing internally in their own minds? Well, he tells us in verse 2, he wants them first to remember Father Abraham. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. God is calling on his people to stop calling out to him and saying, Wait, God, you've forgotten us. God, we are forsaken. We saw last week that ridiculous charge that God had somehow divorced them. He's saying, Wait, wait, wait a minute, time out. I haven't left you. I haven't forgotten you. In fact, I'm inviting you to believe in me. And when you believe in me, you need to keep in mind your own personal sort of salvific history. That you as a people were brought into being when I called Abraham your father. And oh yeah, by the way, he was but one when I called him. 
In other words, God is saying to them, listen, if you will look back at the way in which I have worked redemptively in your history, you will see that you are, you are a descendant of the one who was blessed and multiplied. Verse 3, understand the Lord's going to comfort you. He's going to make your desert like the Garden of Eden. He's going to make the desert like the Garden of the Lord. And instead of despair and agony, joy and gladness are going to be found in Zion, thanksgiving and the voice of song. He wants them to remember their history. He wants them to remember his dealings with Abraham and Sarah. But he doesn't just stop there. He wants them to also remember the eternal things. And in verses 4 to 6, the things that are eternal are not the people that oppress them. No, the things that are eternal are the salvation and the righteousness that God himself brings. Look at the end of verse 6. My salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me. You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Friends, that's a challenging word. We are often overwhelmed by our circumstances. We are often overwhelmed by the context in which we find ourselves trying to live. And when we find ourselves being reproached, when we find ourselves being reviled, the temptation is to basically let go of all that the Lord has given us because we can't bear the reproach. But look at verse 8. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. We need to remember the things that are eternal. It's God's salvation. It's God's righteousness. And in verses 7 and 8, he continues to remind us that it's people who are little, even the powerful people. Yes, Judah is surrounded. Yes, Jerusalem is living as a remnant. Yes, God has said the Babylonians are going to come and carry them into captivity. But God is reminding them that those things are only for a season. Those things are only for a time. But his righteousness is forever, and his salvation is an eternal one. It is to all generations. Abraham's life is a powerful reminder of all of these things. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Abraham was not looking forward to a city that could be made by human hands, but rather he was looking forward to an eternal city. We're also reminded in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham is the example of those who are justified by faith. That Abraham knew of the righteousness and the salvation that God brings, and that he acquired that through his faith. I always find this week between uh, Christmas and New Year's to be to be interesting. I, I found it interesting as a young pastor because that was the one Sunday out of the year when I was the youth pastor that they let me preach. Right? It's like uh, everybody's going to be gone. Let's let the youth guy preach. And so I felt like you know I had a year's worth of stuff I had to say, 
So it was like an hour. First time I got to preach at Carl, it was like an hour. And then I didn't get asked to preach again until the next year in the week between Christmas and New Year's. But it is an interesting time because it does give us the opportunity, I think, just naturally to take stock of our, the past year that we had and to just take, take stock of our lives. And so I wonder this week, can we stop talking and can we listen? Can we understand that because God has sent his son into the world, there are certain things that he requires of us. That if we do indeed have the kind of faith that we profess we have, it's going to be demonstrated in how we act. Abby read that for us this morning in our New Testament reading. That if we have faith, our faith is going to be demonstrated in how we live our lives. When I was a a youth pastor, um, we served in a church in South Louisville, Kentucky, Carl Avenue Baptist Church. And uh, that particular part of town was a basketball, like all the kids in the youth group were, they were just basketball crazy. And it was interesting because they'd all walk in and every one of them would tell you, oh, Pastor Kyle, I got game. Oh, I got, oh, I can throw, I got game. Now, this was in like mid-90s, so half of them are wearing their shorts uh, like down about to here, and you know, you can't even run, let alone jump, so you wonder how much game they really have. And it was always interesting to see the kids who talked a lot but had no game over and against the kids that didn't talk very much but could really play. Well, friends, what James is reminding us of and what Isaiah is reminding us of is if all we're going to do is talk about our faith but have no game, it's not true biblical faith. No, true biblical faith is going to act. And one of the ways that we act is we stop talking and we listen. We stop talking and we remember. Secondly, we need to wake up and see what God has done and is doing. We need to wake up and see what God has done and is doing. Again, there are imperatives that control what's going on in this section. In chapter 51, verse 9, we're told, awake, awake, put on strength. Again, in verse 17, we read, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. And then in chapter 52, verse 1, awake, awake, put on strength, O Zion. God is dealing with people who are not physically sleepy, but spiritually that's certainly the case. Now, let's at this point stop and go, we can't really blame them. After all, if if the messenger, if God's prophet had come to you and said, hey, listen, uh, you're going to be taken into exile, you and your children. At that point, you're just kind of sitting around waiting, going, all right, well, uh, there's not a whole heck of a lot we can do until this happens. So I can just sort of check out. And then once this, this, once this tragedy happens, then we can sort of wake up and see what's going on. But God is saying to them now, no, listen, you need to wake up. You need to wake up because I'm going to comfort you in the midst of this. And you need to wake up because what's going on is really redemptive. Look at verse 17. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drunk to the dregs, to the bowl, the cup of staggering. And then he goes on to say, but the problem is you have nobody there to guide you. So here's what's happening. God's judgment is going to fall upon them. But because they're spiritually asleep, they're not going to discern what it is that's going on. 
Verse 21, therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Friends, they're going to suffer. They're going to undergo God's judgment. But the temptation here and the real tragedy would be that they would undergo God's judgment, but miss the point. They won't turn. They won't repent. They won't seek to find their comfort in God himself. Now, there's an interesting conversation going on then in this section. In verses 9 to 11, it's actually Judah who speaks. It's God's people saying, hey, God, wake up. We need you to do what you've done in the past. After all, he's just talked about all that he did through Abraham. Remember what I did through Abraham. Remember what I did through Sarah. Remember these eternal things. And they're saying, okay, that's great, but we need a little bit of that right now. Can you do for us what you did for them? Because we'd like to obtain, at the end of verse 11, joy, gladness, and we'd love to see sorrow and sighing flee away from us. Now, in verse 12, God responds. And we want to give particular attention to that first phrase. I, I am he who comforts you. I am he who comforts you. Let me ask you a question this morning. When you have a day or a week or a month, or a year, that is not going as you planned, where do you find your comfort? Where do you go? Where do you turn? When God in his loving providence lets you bear in yourself the consequences for your foolishness and your rebellion and your sin, where do you go? Where do you turn? Do you escape into the, uh, your own little neat and tidy reality that you've created in your own imagination? I like the, the commercials with uh, Peyton Manning and Brad Paisley, and they're living in Peytonville. And so I have a similar thing. I have Kyleville. And by the way, the mayor of Kyleville is awesome all the time. And I like to escape there. It's great. Everything works. Everything fits. The mayor of Kyleville is never an idiot. Perhaps you find your comfort in uh, watching whatever news channel you find fits the narrative that you've created. Maybe it's money. Comfort? Sex. Maybe you've figured out ways to self-medicate. And so it's there that you find your comfort. See, friends, I'm afraid that what's true of God's people in verses 12 and 13 can be true of us as well. 
Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who's made like grass? You have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? Now, don't miss what happens then in verses 14 to 16. Because in verses 14 to 16, God shows what he tells them in verse 12. I am he who comforts you. What's he say in verse 14? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. God promises them comfort. He tells them how it is that, that, that they've failed, that they've turned away from him. But God in his grace and in his mercy says, listen, I know you've blown it. I know you've made a complete mess of it. I know you've created these own little worlds in which you're the mayor and you're awesome all the time, but you're not. And when you're not, the only hope you have is verses 14 to 16. I'm the Lord, your God. That's it. Friends, that's our hope. That's our comfort. It's not in my own imagination. It's not in my own reality. It's not in money. It's not in how I try to comfort myself. It's not in sex. It's not in self-medication. It's not in any of the things that we pursue. No, the comfort that we need is found in the words in verse 15, I am the Lord your God. And I love then how he defines himself. Did you notice that? Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Let's think for just a second. Think about the New Testament Jesus is in the boat with the disciples and the waves kick up and Jesus says, he, you know, does a Fonzie and cool it. Some of you are way too young to know what I'm even talking about. That's okay. Ask, actually, ask your grandparents. They'll tell you. And what do the disciples say when that happens? Who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. You see, the disciples knew Isaiah 51 only God commands the winds and the waves. Only God can stir up the sea so that its waves roar. Well, in verses 17 to 23, God has given them words of comfort. Now he gives them words of truth. Hey, listen, you're asleep. I'm doing this thing, and you're missing it because you're spiritually asleep. You've drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You've drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. Now, he, he's going to talk about that again. He's, he's going to come along and he's going, to, he's going to tell us about the cup in verse 22. So let's look there. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. Okay, so where'd it go? Where did it go? They've drunk from the cup of wrath. They've drunk it to the dregs. It's the cup of staggering. 
Now, verse 22, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you're going to drink no more. Okay, so who's drinking it? Remember that when we get to the table. In chapter 52, verses 1 to 2 then, God tells them to awake again, not because they're going to miss something that they need to understand, but he's going to tell them, he's telling them to awake because of what it is that he's going to have, what, what he's about to do. Put on your strength, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For no more are the uncircumcised and the unclean going to come into you. Be seated instead and take off the bonds, bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. See, God comforts them with what he has done and what he is doing. And then in chapter 52, verses 1 to 2, he tells them, what he's going to do. How's God at work in your life? Now, I realize that there are times in which God is at work in our lives and we're not even, we, we have no idea. In fact, we have no idea of what the Lord is doing until later, and then we look back and go, huh, that was really interesting. Uh, one of my favorite examples of that, there's a, a man named Timothy Whitmer. He taught pastoral theology at uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, where our own Sheldon Nordhues went. And he was preaching, uh, he pastors on the side and was preaching through the book of Philippians, and he got to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, and which talks, which, uh, well, let's just turn, uh, keep your finger, and let's turn to Philippians 4, 8. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So, Dr. Whitmer is preaching through that with his congregation, comes to that passage, it kind of sticks in his head, he's not sure why, and decides, okay, maybe I need to start kind of thinking about that, meditating on it, writing a little bit, so he does, and then comes out of that, this book called Mindscape, What to Think About Instead of Worrying. Well, here's the interesting thing. He could look back and go, well, why, why was Philippians 4-8 a big deal? And why did, why did the Holy Spirit sort of burn that into my imagination? Well, because the Whitmers have a son who's in the armed forces, and he was being sent uh, to active combat duty in Iraq. And so I don't care how old you are as a parent. If you have a son or daughter who's in harm's way, what are you going to think about? And is it going to be joyful, happy, fuzzy thoughts? No, you're going to worry. And so Whitmer realized a year after he had preached through the book of Philippians that God was working in his life by really just sort of burning that text into his mind so that he and his wife then could walk through what later became this book because they were trying to, as parents who love their son, show the reality of the gospel as he was deployed. We need to wake up. We need to see what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. Thirdly and finally, and we'll go quickly here, we need to take part in the new exodus. We need to take part in the new exodus. God evokes the language of bringing his people out of Egypt the first time. And he says that he has sent them away, and now he's going to bring them back. Verse 6, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. 
here am I. Now, you know that Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, gets quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10. That Paul speaks of those who are sent out to proclaim the good news of God's redemptive work through his son, Jesus. But it's interesting then that the, the, the punchline for this, what it is that we're supposed to do, knowing that we are a part of this new exodus, is found in verse 11. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessel of the Lord. In other words, the people of God are supposed to live differently from the culture that is around them. The people of God are supposed to live differently from the culture that is around them. Now, let's not get ourselves tied up in knots on this. This is not about whether you go to movies. This is not about whether or not women wear pants. This is not about any of the silly and ridiculous things I heard in churches I was growing up. I love the way, instead, the membership questions that we have in the PCA, I love the way we ask it, and that is, will you live as becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? So let's ask ourselves that. If we have indeed taken part in this new exodus, are we living in a way that becomes the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not a hard question. How you answer it is much trickier. But it's not a hard question. We who have been called in the gospel and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we who are part of this new exodus, are called then to live differently. We who bear the vessels of the Lord, our lives should look different from those who claim no such allegiance to Jesus and the gospel. Well, I love, again, the statement in chapter 51, verse 22. I've taken the cup from your hand, the cup of staggering. Okay, where does it go? Remember Jesus' words in the garden? as he's praying, as he's sweating drops of blood. Remember what he said to the Father? Take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Friends, this morning as we come to the table, we do so remembering that God the Father took the cup of staggering the bowl of the wrath that we deserve, and he put it into the hands of God the Son. And God the Son drained it, according to Psalm 75. He drained it right down to the dregs. Why can we take part in this new exodus? Why are we those who have, as he says, the, the law of God written in our hearts, chapter 51, verse 7. Why is that true of us? It's true of us only because of what Christ has done. See, it always gets a little twitchy, doesn't it, when we start talking about stuff that we're supposed to do and the fact that the Bible calls us to do things. If we're not careful, we could confuse our work for Jesus' work. Don't do that. No, it's Jesus who drained to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. And so that reminds us then of our eternal reality. It reminds us that there's a table that's yet to come. 
And it reminds us of the really good news that Isaiah proclaims, namely, our God reigns. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for all the places in which we try to find comfort. And Father, forgive us because we, we who profess the name of Jesus are nonetheless, like we turn to you as a last resort. And so we're prayerless and we're joyless and we want to stand and give you an earful. So Lord, help us instead to listen. Help us to look to what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And Father, help us to understand that it's the Lord Jesus who has liberated us and brought us into this new exodus. For we pray these things now in his name. Amen.